Well, Mark recently began a series on Apostle Paul's uh, letter to the Galatians, and he will pick up where he left off. Today we're going to stick more or less with the lectionary. I threw a, a curve into the things by, by uh, changing the, the uh, gospel reading, the, excuse me, the, the epistle reading. The Christian life is full of absurdities and self-contradictions. Weakness is strength, foolishness is wisdom, the last become first, the way to life is through death, wealth through poverty, freedom through bondage, triumph through defeat. An apparent absurdity or self-contradiction that is actually true is what we call a paradox, and today we're going to be looking at some of the paradoxes related to pride and its opposites. Our scripture readings for today and, and, and the music that was chosen that goes so well with that, especially in Luke, in the book of Proverbs, warn us about pride. And they tell us how to overcome it. So let's uh, briefly take a look at uh, pride as it relates to God, as it relates to others, and then let's concentrate on the proper responses. Humility, love, and self-donation. The Bible's emphasis on pride is, is really unique in world religions. You won't find anything quite like it in any other belief system. In fact, something very much like pride is actually a virtue in Aristotle and in Greek myth and legend and in many of the, the world's uh, cultures. In the Bible, pride is always, first of all, towards God. Pride is directed towards God and offends God. Pride is at the base of the very first sin, Adam and Eve, who rebel against God to seek uh, their, to be like God. Pride is at the base of the fall of Lucifer, who rebels against God to seek his own glory. And in Christian thought, pride is the first and worst of the seven deadly sins, and it's the driver behind all the other six of the deadly sins. Pride, pride is the distilled essence of sin. So, inevitably, pride goes before destruction, as we read in, in Proverbs this morning, and a haughty spirit before a fall. It must go before destruction. Destruction must follow pride if there's going to be justice. Now, at roughly this point in the discussion, it's usually, it's usually common to make a disclaimer here that we're not talking about the pride that we have in our children. We're not talking about the pride that we have in our friends whose accomplishments are, are those that we, with people we love or identify with. And that is an important distinction. However, it's not always easy to disambiguate the two kinds of pride, is it? Am I taking pleasure in them because it makes me look good? Am I giving or am I taking? When we cheer our team, when we cheer our nation, are we giving or are we taking? Because of pride, of course, pride can be collective. Quote, making a name for ourselves, unquote, in, in the language that the city of Babel uses. What is pride? Pride is refusing to subject ourselves to God and his sovereignty and instead taking for ourselves the honor due to him alone. Taking for ourselves the honor due to him alone. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
We don't have a good word in English for uh, what we usually translate as the fear of the Lord. But one starting place for a right understanding of the world uh, would be to understand this fear, which is, which is so basic. See this scary distance that exists between us and God, between who we are and who God is. The godly fear of the Lord is grounded in this dissimilarity with God. We fear God because he is God and I am not. We fear God in the right sense because he is holy and we are not. Because he is just and we're not. He is is God and if we're humble, it's because we have a lot to be humble about. But we fear God also because he's the source of life. And and, and apart from God, any distance from God, we die. He is strong. We are weak. He is wise. Not so much for ourselves. So I commend to you a prayer. It's a prayer that God always answers, if asked sincerely. It's been called the Jesus Prayer, or sometimes just the prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's what I started with a minute ago. Listen to this. The the core of it is, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I want to say it one more time, and then I I would like to invite you to pray with me. Listen the first time. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Shall we pray together? Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Pride is first of all towards God, but it can also be, in a derivative sense, toward others. In the very first season of Saturday Night Live, the news anchor of the weekend update used to begin by saying, good evening, I'm Chevy Chase, and you're not. (laughs) That is human pride, brilliantly exposed in all its brutal simplicity for public mockery. I, you. When we see it as it is, it's funny because it's laughable, our pretensions, and this kind of laughter can be godly, I think. It's good to laugh at ourselves and our our, our, our presumptions, but... As the skit demonstrates, pride can also intrude in the right ordering of people to other people. Jesus sees how the religious people of his day are chasing honor, and he warns them against it. In the Gospel reading from Luke, Jesus describes a situation. Say you're at a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor. You can only go down from there. Take a low place, you can only go up from there. The Apostle Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Power and honor are competitive. My advantage is always going to be at your expense. If you win, I lose. It's a zero-sum game. Honor is all about the good opinion of those who matter. And especially for Christians, it's all about the good opinion of God. But here's the thing about honor. 
You can't control it, especially directly. Honor, where it is due, is the byproduct of excellence. Now, we do have some control over excellence. Have you worked on developing your character? Have I? Do you do good work? Are you developing your skills, developing your talents? Do you bring blessing on lots of people? Do you excel at what you do? Or do you excel at the role that you have, the roles that you have? Well, then you will probably be honored. But as in the case of profits and fame and power and winning, if you chase honor directly, even if you get it, you probably won't deserve it. And so for the reasons just given about our shortcomings, honor is a grace. Honor is always, for sinners, a grace. And the very best among us, those very best, the most excellent among us, when honored, often know this better than anyone else. They know how much they have fallen short, how much they have to learn, how much they need to improve, to grow. They're acutely aware of their own shortcomings, even if they are acknowledged as the best. Jesus says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. How do we humble ourselves? Well, the first thing to say is that Jesus is our example. We only know what this looks like in practice because of him. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, as we just heard in Paul writing to the Philippians, but in humility count yourselves, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the ultimate story of humility and exaltation. Jesus humbled himself. He alone of all human beings, did not deserve to be humbled, let alone humiliated as he was. And that was the purpose of crucifixion, was total humiliation. So because of his impeccable merit, God has raised him to the highest position. And so anything that we do in humbling ourselves is, is derivative because of the dissimilarity in our own situation because of our failures and our inferiority, as we've been talking about. So here, too, I want to commend this, this same prayer to you again. I'll say it once again, and then I'd like, us, I'd like to invite you to pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Together, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, 
Have mercy on me, a sinner. Paul tells us several things which I will review quickly and as we're finishing up here. First, count others more significant than yourselves, he says. What does that mean? Well, it means to highlight the merits of others, to talk about the merits of others and what they're, what they're good at. It's to, it's to lift up others verbally. We know our own faults better than anyone. And so we can push others forward without, without false modesty. And in this respect, fake it till you make it, if you have to. Act as if others are more significant. Count them as better. Act as if they're more significant. That's what, that's what that means. Second, Paul says, don't look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Not only to your own interests. And it's not that we, you know, hurt ourselves or that we neglect ourselves. And this is a false dichotomy that's, that's arisen in, in Christian ethics, I'm afraid. There's a, nothing wrong with looking after your interests. In fact, as part of what it means to be a good steward, you do have to take care of the person that God has made you the most responsible for, and that's yourself. It's not what you want, of course, when you're looking after your interests. It's actually what you're, you're looking after what you know God wants for you, what he has given you responsibility for, what's actually good for you. But you do count. God loves you, and God wants you to flourish. So be a good steward of yourself. You count, but you count for one. You're not your only responsibility. You're also responsible for the care of anyone whose welfare you influence, beginning with those right next to you at work, at church, and especially at home. Work to help others get recognized practically for their merits. Help them get ahead practically. Augustine of Hippo famously wrote that the way of godliness is first of all through humility, second through humility, and third through humility. I looked that up to see if that was the first time that that particular trope had been used. It wasn't. That it, was, it, was, it was actually even current at that time. But as I was looking up, it was really interesting to see because what he means to say is not, he goes on to say, it's not because there's nothing else to say about about education, about the way of godliness, but that if you don't get humility, first of all, then nothing else is going to have any impact at all. You won't be learning. You won't be going anywhere. And it was actually to a, uh, in a letter to a wealthy young man named Diascanus. And Diascanus had written to Augustine, who was his bishop over a very large territory, a number of Christians, and this young man said, I'm going to on a trip soon and I urgently need you to answer these questions on philosophy and theology because I really don't want to look illiterate and stupid if I encounter challenges. How would you respond to a letter like that? Would you just ignore it? Would you write him a, a, a short, polite refusal? Augustine starts this way. You have sent suddenly upon me a countless multitude of questions by which you must have purposed to blockade me on every side, or, or rather bury me completely. Even if you were under the impression that I was otherwise unoccupied and at leisure, for how could I, even though wholly at leisure, furnish you the solution of so many questions to one in such haste as you are, and in fact as you write on the eve of a journey? And then in paragraph after paragraph, he takes this young man apart. 
it's really harsh. I was reading this and I was thinking, but you see that he sees, he means business. He's really concerned about the young man's spiritual well-being. And then he goes on to answer his questions. And what I calculated would be on eight and a half by 11 paper, a 40 page letter, handwritten to this young man. Other examples of how servant leadership has actually shown us, shown up in our culture. U.S. military officers always eat after the enlisted troops have eaten. That's not common. It has shown up, and there are examples. In the study of business administration, there's a school of thought that comes directly out of Robert Greenleaf's book, The Leader as Servant. And it's based on his faith as a Christian and a Quaker. And we have many examples of bad leadership in corporate America, but there are many good ones as well. I know a corporation right, based right here in Boston that has done really, really well by serving super small businesses, businesses with just one or two max employees. And one of the key players in the success of this corporation that has become multinational, it's huge, you would recognize the name instantly, is a man, a friend of mine, a model of a Christian leadership. He took his own department early on in the corporation from 50 people to 500 people, and then he got more responsibility, and at one time he had 2,500 people directly under his leadership in this organization by serving others. He's an exemplary model of servant leadership. Have the mentality of Jesus, Paul says. Don't hang desperately to your privileges. Hold them loosely. Be ready to give them up if he takes them away. And then I would say, you know, tell him what you want. Be honest about what you want, even if what you want is not great. He knows what you want anyway. Just tell him, and that way he can change your heart, change your attitude as necessary. Tell him what you want, but be ready to let it go also. And then, in fact, actively take the role of a servant. If you want to count for God, be ready to serve and to look for ways to serve. Be ready to sacrifice if called to do so. You and I cannot replicate Jesus' sacrifice, but we may imitate it somewhat crudely. This also works politically, by the way. Do you want to shake up the powers of be? Do you want to shake things up politically? Make a difference for those who need it. Advocate for the lowly. Don't just talk about doing good for them. Don't just protest. Don't post rants constantly online or destroy people and their opinions. Actually make life better for those in need. Because the politically powerful are often powerless before poverty and ignorance and the many problems that they face. All they can do too often is throw money at the situation. And money is needed, very much needed. But as anyone knows who get, gets involved with it up close, the problems are only partially material. And if you lead the way in making a difference in people's lives, you will make a difference politically and get the attention of the, of the people at the top. If you want life, get ready to lay down your life. If you want to be fruitful and flourishing, be prepared to die like a seed buried in the ground. If you want to be great, serve. And so let's pray one more time. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner.